Hi, welcome to The Annotated Author, where we discuss books, movies, and other pieces from a cultural and artistic lens. I'm your host, David Mosqueda. Previously, I mentioned the toy store where I bought King Solomon's Mines at 8 years old. Well, that store became one of my favorite places to visit, and the drive to the outlets where it was became far less unbearable. I added Sherlock Holmes to my collection that following winter, and then in the spring I added a book that would absolutely change my life. Dracula. Bram Stoker's Dracula is one of the few books that I have revisited more than a handful of times. The first time I read it was in the fourth grade. It was May, and my mom made me a deal that if I could finish the book before the coming Friday, she would take me to the opening night of Van Helsing. I thought it was going to be an impossible feat, but I managed, and my nine-year-old self was so giddy to be in the theater watching Wolverine take on monsters of who I knew nothing about. Well, that is for all the monsters except one, Dracula. For a week, I ate, breathed, and dreamed vampires. I was hooked, and the world according to Dracula captivated me in a way that nothing had ever done before. To this day, I still have moments where I say weird turns of phrase that I learned from the story. My favorite, do not let your eyes see nor your ears hear that which you cannot account for. I also know an immense amount of Transylvanian culture thanks to this book. Since my fascination with it led me to do research on it for school papers and essays that I wrote in the fifth grade. My copies of Dracula are beaten and tattered, worn out to their final moments, barely hanging on to their bindings. That week I spent reading the great illustrated classic in the fourth grade was the most difficult thing I had endured as a creative child. Not because the book was above my level, but because I never could have enough time to make a dent in the workload. I spent every minute of free time reading the book. Sometimes in class, I would have only minutes and be able to read a sentence or two. When I got home, I would read after homework, then dinner, and then read until lights out. I had an anxiousness to know what happened next. The great illustrated classic version is very watered down. It gets a kid from point A to Z with not much more, but the adventure, again, of a place I had never heard of, with characters far more fierce than I had seen before, it was magical. I had already grown a love for movies, but I was still watching children's stuff. This would be my first big step into a new world. My imagination grew now to put names to monsters, living spaces, and actual crime and horror to the fear. I finished the book just in time. I left school Friday with such an excitement to go and sit in the dark theater, ready to see Dracula come to life on the big screen. Van Helsing only furthered my love for the characters of the book, but that'll be a story for another day. My infatuation with Count Dracula would last two years. I hadn't even seen Francis Ford Coppola's film yet, or let alone the classic Universal film. Dracula would stay with me well into my adulthood. Even now, discussing this brings me such joy and excitement I'm not sitting still in my seat. My mom loves monster movies. A tradition we keep up with is watching any scary movie we can together. 
every Halloween season while growing up, there would always be some exorcism movie to go see, and every Christmas, because he's her favorite, we'd go watch a Johnny Depp movie. She had similar moments with her mom growing up. They would watch scary movies together too. They'd watch the classics, Dracula, Frankenstein, The Wolfman. My grandma would even listen to a radio show in Spanish about urban legends that would scare her to sleep with the lights on. I'm sure there are many papers about what it is about them that attracts us as humans to these types of stories, but I know for me and my family it's the jump, the heart-racing anticipation, and the laughs you get from sharing a scare together. So it goes without saying that my mom was excited that I showed such interest in the monsters she knew well. I could also share my excitement with someone as I would retell the story and the parts that I had just read at the dinner table. It was very encouraging to know that my fascination with this character was not just mine. Let's get right into the summary of Dracula. Again, I apologize for the spoilers. This one definitely won't be as brief as King Solomon's Mine, and even though I'm going to be sharing with all of you the book, I highly recommend going out and getting a copy of it yourself. It will definitely be worth it. Our story begins in Transylvania, where Jonathan Harker has been sent to me with a very promising individual, who is hoping to buy up quite a bit of land around London. Count Dracula is hoping to leave his castle estate in the mountains of his home country and set up shop in England. Jonathan is warned numerous times by the locals not to entertain a visit to the Count, that he is an evil presence and should have no company. Jonathan brushes aside the myths and legends as just that, fantasies of the locals. His arrival to Castle Dracula and meeting the Count does not go without his excitement. Jonathan is given the basics of vampirism while he is with the Count, the crucifixes being a weakness, no reflections in the mirror, and the need to drink blood. Jonathan is kept a prisoner in Castle Dracula. He soon learns he is not alone. The children of the night block his escape, and the brides prevent him from having anywhere to hide in the maze that are the halls of the castle. Back in London, Jonathan's fiancée Mina is awaiting his return so they can be married. She's with her friend Lucy, who is being courted by three men. Quincy Morris, a Texan, Jack Seward, lead doctor of the sanitarium, and Arthur Holmwood, a local rich boy. Mina is left to care for Lucy, who has a much more free-spirited way about her. Mina is a far more traditional girl, and Lucy far more liberal in love and in cultural norms. With Jonathan's return, Mina's time is no longer left only catering to Lucy. She's now caring for Jonathan and his recovery. He returns a shell of what he once was, as his time with the brides has left him weak. With Jonathan's return comes a few weird events around the city a loose wolf from the zoo, and the appearances of a sickness for Lucy. Then there's Dr. Seward, who is caring for a patient by the name of Renfield, who has a prophecy, the return of his dark master. Jack Seward keeps him under close watch, but he manages to escape. Dr. Seward, being madly in love with Lucy, calls upon a professor of his to come and take care of her and her health. Van Helsing comes to London with a great deal of truth bombs. Lucy is going to die. There is no saving her, but there is saving her from the next life, the life of the undead, Nosferatu, the vampire. They try many tricks to save Lucy, but in the end, everything they try fails. Lucy passes, and all the men must become grave robbers. After her death, there are a series of crimes around town, and the person described has a pretty good resemblance to Lucy. The group go to her crypt, 
to find it empty. And then we get the story of how to kill a vampire, stake through the heart, and then cut off her head. Dracula now turns his sights on Mina, who he is able to get under his spell. Off the two go as the group hunts Dracula around London. He gets the idea to return to Transylvania with his new bride. They all give chase, culminating in a climactic battle at Castle Dracula for Mina's soul. The next year in the fifth grade, uh, we were given a writing assignment. A small research paper about a topic of our choice. Five paragraphs, super simple. My topic? Dracula. I wrote about his past, I wrote about his home. Like I said, I learned a lot about Transylvanian culture and even its exporting and importing patterns. I was obsessed with this world. Even the excitement of Sherlock Holmes in the fourth grade that led me to want to learn to play the violin, which I can still do to this day, had faded with this new book. Picking up Frankenstein that summer made my love for the Count only grow stronger. Dracula was a pivotal moment for me, because it turned much of the world I knew on its head. I grew up a very devout Catholic, and was mainly only ever told the fun stories of the Bible. Dracula brought a new side of the Bible to me. Dracula introduced me to sex. It introduced me to R-rated movies, scenes that my parents for the first time would need to fast forward, something that would never have happened before Dracula. I remember my mom gifted me the full version of Dracula for my next birthday while I was in the fifth grade. There's an essay at the beginning of it that introduced the themes of Dracula. My mom's face was in complete shock when I asked her what fellatio meant. One of those looks of, oh no, what did I give him? She went on to describe it the best she could, but I was still pretty confused. Which is honestly the best segue into why is Dracula so important? And why was it an instant classic for people? Dracula is a Victorian novel with gothic themes, and to understand Dracula, we have to go back to the beginning of Bram Stoker's life and understand the world around him. Abraham Stoker was born November 8th, 1847, the year Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre was published, as well as Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights. Two years later, Edgar Allan Poe died. During his life, Bram Stoker would see some great literary works published. Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade, Whitman's Leaves of Grass, Alice's Adventures, and Through the Looking Glass. Darwin would change science and introduce On the Origin of Species. So much of the world was advancing rapidly, but one place it wasn't was social norms. Two years before Dracula was published, in 1895, Oscar Wilde is jailed for homosexual offenses. He was censored for not hiding the gay themes of Dorian Gray well enough. Bram Stoker would get away with them and solidify his work as part of a revolution, whether he meant to or not. Dracula sucks the blood of his victims after getting his mouth around their necks. He sinks his teeth into their flesh as he is rejuvenated by their bodily fluids. The neck is a very common erogenous zone, in case you all didn't know. Dracula preyed on both men and women. There was no differentiating them to him. There is a very sexual nature to the acts of a vampire. Even the brides are described as being naked and tempting Jonathan and hypnotizing him, where they partake in what is almost nightly orgies. The novel is written as numerous journal entries and letters between the characters. So reading the scenes as Jonathan describes them as some type of temptation and sin allows for an immense amount of reading between the lines. 
you can almost read his guilt for enjoying it. At the time, sex was a very taboo subject in Victorian culture. Here was Bram Stoker giving us characters that were using bodies and temptation to lure sexual acts from their victims. The true work of the devil. There's a lot to dissect. I honestly don't know where to start. Maybe the best place will be to start with what we can learn as writers from the novel. Bram Stoker is writing a very good suspense thriller for his audience. In doing so, he must paint a picture for his reader that can be turned on the dime to create tension and then a release. There are so many passages about the color of the sky, the setting sun, and the wonders of night. The sunset is always described before the arrival of the vampire, Dracula or his bride. There is beauty in nature, and Stoker wants us to know it. He gives great detail to these landscapes, just before he reveals some of the most grotesque acts of the whole novel. We spend a heavy amount of time on supporting characters, understanding their thoughts and emotions. Dracula always has a watcher role. He's always lurking, and that is what brings such great suspense. These characters are so enveloped in their world, they never see the full threat around them. By understanding the supporting characters, we understand that Dracula is a catalyst, and not the full problem. Thematically, at least. Narratively, he's definitely the big bad and deserves what's coming to him. The natural world becomes so twisted with the darkness of Dracula that it, in a way, becomes a large part of him. The attractiveness of the natural world is adopted by Dracula. Despite him being described as a monster and as an ailing man, as just this really ugly creature, we see beauty in him because the natural world is so illustrious to us. Stoker uses what is known as the pathetic fallacy, the trick of making the natural world reflect the emotional world of his story. I pointed out the world Stoker grew up in because he is living in a world with Sherlock Holmes and Jack the Ripper. He's also in a world with landscapes by Claude Monet. Nothing can be more paradoxical, and all of it exists in Dracula. Stoker is also a man writing in his time period. He's in a world that is about to give way to Freudian psychology. Freud actually gets published two years after Dracula. But throughout the novel, there are references to other notable scientists. Dr. Seward, who is keeping to the minute with all forms of modern medicine, introduces us to Jean-Martin Charcot, the pioneer of hypnotic suggestion, someone Freud studied under. There are even many examples of the time that were beginning to lay the groundwork for people's coming to consciousness of the world around them. The Victorian era was heavy on repression, but many new ideas were making their way from person to person, and with many works, literature was light years ahead. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, for instance. Dr. Henry Jekyll was a prime example of ego and superego, where Mr. Hyde and all his monstrosity and murder could be a personification of what we fear is repressed in humankind, the id. Long before these theories were even hashed out, Dorian Gray is a cautionary tale about what happens when we reach the impossible limit of repression. Nothing stays locked away forever. H.G. Wells played with the duality of man and the invisible man, and Dracula plays with sex and death. Let me read you this quote. The thing in the coffin writhed. And a hideous blood-curdling screech came from the open red lips. The body shook and quivered and twisted in wild contortions. 
The sharp white teeth champed together till the lips were cut and the mouth was smeared with a crimson foam. But Arthur never faltered. He looked like a figure of Thor as his untrembling arm rose and fell, driving deeper and deeper the mercy-bearing stake, whilst the blood from the pierced heart welled and spurted up around it. And then the writhing and the quivering of the body became less, and the teeth ceased to champ and the face to quiver. Finally it lay still. The terrible task was over. And then there's a second quote. With his left hand, he held both Mrs. Harker's hands, keeping them away with her arms at full tension. His right hand gripped her by the back of the neck, forcing her face down on his bosom. Her white nightdress was smeared with blood, and a thin stream trickled down the man's bare chest which was shown by his torn open dress. The attitude of the two had a terrible resemblance to a child forcing a kitten's nose into a saucer of milk to compel it to drink. When the blood began to spurt out, he took my hands in one of his, holding them tight, and with the other seized my neck, and pressed my mouth to the wound, so that I must either suffocate or swallow the... Oh my god. My god. What have I done? There's a lot to be said about those passages from Dracula. Mina's in particular definitely resembles the heavy sexual act. For the first passage between Arthur and Lucy, you have to get a little more embedded in it to understand that it's a man penetrating a woman. And in the end, the little death. To say it was lost on folks in their time is probably not the most accurate. Or that Bram Stoker had no idea what he was accomplishing is almost laughable to me. Whether he intended to wake people up to pornographic imagery in their mind or not, it was done. Lucy goes on to become the model of a modern woman who was not afraid to hide her attraction toward men and use her looks and beauty to play these men against one another. It is not the most feminist novel to exist, it is far from it. There are a lot of problems with consent and the macho man coming to everyone's aid. But if we learned anything from Mary Shelley, it is that science is much greater than any man's strength. The laws of nature are beyond our power, sometimes even beyond our understanding. Freud looms over Dracula and the Victorian era. We have a world about to meet science head-on again after meeting its capabilities in Frankenstein and with On the Origin of Species. Freud revolutionized psychology, and though we have gone far from him now, it laid groundwork for an immense amount of future discovery in the world of mental health. Dracula is a mere stepping stone. I wonder if this also sparked my love for science. Maybe, but I would definitely credit Frankenstein with that more, I think. But, like I've said before, that's a story for another day. Dracula brings to the world a new force of nature. One that is almost human, but something is not quite right. I think that's the horror of it all. We know and sense when something is wrong. But what do we do when we have no knowledge on how to protect ourselves? When the worlds of mysticism and magic, even religion, begin to blend with the laws of nature. Dracula is a timeless classic. It would go on to inspire so many other works, despite it owing so much to many of the vampire stories that came before. Dark Shadows in the 60s, the beginning of the Universal Monster Cinematic Universe in 1931, 
Anne Rice and the even more sexual vampire? How do we begin to truly dissect the impact of Dracula? Well, I always turn to one great example of how far Dracula can go, and that is a skit from In Living Color starring Jamie Foxx as Wanda and Jim Carrey as the Count. Dracula is important to me, like I said, because it opened my eyes to a world so far outside of my own. It gave me weird tidbits of information that I still use to this day to answer Jeopardy questions, decades later. If you want vampire lore, I'm the guy to come to. It doesn't come up often, but if it's needed, I definitely have most of it filed away in my mind palace for anyone wanting their ear chewed off. I can't really imagine what my personality would look like without Dracula. I grew such a fondness for the way the characters were written and the way the characters were developed that I started to kind of mimic it in my creative process. The way we spend a lot of time getting a lot of nonsense about characters that doesn't necessarily pertain to the plot, it just helps to build a better picture for the reader. In building that picture, we build a world that allows them to suspend their disbelief. I learned about that in film school, uh, during my film history class actually. The idea of the suspension of disbelief. It's creating a world that is so believable that people will essentially forget that they're watching a movie and just immerse themselves in the story. I'm sure it's happened to you when you're watching one of your favorite movies or watching something really good that you kind of forget about the world around you and lose that hour and a half that you spent. But you didn't actually lose it, you were just so immersed in the story that you live through it, vicariously through the actors on the screen. I believe that writing should be able to do that exact same thing. If you can build a world so carefully, essentially touch on every physical aspect of it that you can, your reader is going to be suspended in their disbelief until you throw something completely out of left field that breaks that concentration, it breaks that mold, then you lose them. It can happen, it's totally fine. But for a moment, they are literally eating out of your hands. And the only way we can do that is by developing characters, developing worlds, developing a story that is so intricately designed that no matter where a character turns in the room, or where a reader turns in the room, there is some detail there to hold their attention. So yeah, Dracula is an incredibly important book to me. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you want to reach out, please do. My Instagram messages and Twitter messages are always open. This is The Annotated Author, and a reminder that it is always a good time to revisit your favorites.